Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hustrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In this episode I'm talking to composer and sound designer Todd Baker, so you can think of this as a Toddcast. Todd and I discuss how one person can change your life, getting into the game composing industry, blurring the line between music and sound design, overcoming self-doubt and imposter syndrome, the impact of personal life on professional life, and Top Gun. Yes, that's right, so whilst we do go deep, we also make time for Maverick. Now, Todd shares some incredible music that has influenced him, which I highly recommend checking out. You can find links to everything we discuss in the show notes on my website at larpmusic.com forward slash Sync Music Matters Podcast. And Sync Music Matters Podcast is hyphenated. Todd is a composer and sound designer who works primarily in games. Now, when we think of music and visuals, we generally think of TV and film. But audio plays a pivotal role in creating an immersive gaming experience and often serving the kind of complex narrative you would find in film. Todd's unique sound can be heard on BAFTA-nominated games such as Monument Valley 2 by us two games, Media Molecule's Dreams and Tearaway on the PS4, and Alto's Odyssey from Team Alto. Todd has even been commissioned by Google to provide the music for a Google Doodle for Earth Day 2020. As well as being a master of composition and sound design, Todd is also a phenomenal guitarist and co-founding member of the prog jazz funk pop quartet, The Lydian Collective. Um, Todd Baker, thanks for joining us. You make me sound amazing. Thanks. Uh, that's, that's, I don't need to do that. It, 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 you do, it does itself. Um, cool, Todd. Thanks so much for, for joining uh, the Sync Music Matters podcast. It's nice to be here. The question I'd like to open up with, this is the same question I ask all my guests first, is rewind uh, to when Todd Baker was a, a young boy, um, sort of pre-10 years old, you know, running around, gallivanting around the mean streets of uh, Evesham. If someone yeah. at that time period would have asked you what would you like to be when you grew up what would you have replied in that time period interesting it certainly wouldn't have been music at that point or anything to do with it it probably something artistic probably something more visual artistic i mean i did like to draw and you know uh, i did like art gcse rather than music gcse and mm. you know graphic design or something like that i mean not as pre 10 year old but i mean to be honest if i was Pre ten, probably a fighter pilot in in, in the air force because I'd watch Top Gun. Just <laughs> 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 something uh, completely unrealistic and like whatever eighties thing I was absorbing at the time. Yeah, that's um, that's brilliant. It's funny as well because it's you the so my first guest Stephen Warbeck he he wanted to design he wanted to be an aeronautical engineer of high altitude aircraft. <laughs> so amazing, yeah. I mean, did, that, did you make the Top Gun link there or? <laughs> There was no Top Gun link there because he was he's a bit older, so probably Top Gun wasn't quite so... Uh, um, didn't have quite such an impact on him. My cousins were actually in the Air Force, and um, that somehow maybe made me make that leap of it being achievable as well. And, mm. uh, yeah, just well, that's the mind of the eight-year-old me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, was it Top Gun? I don't know whether it was Top Gun or Rambo, or there was a certain 
eight group of films in the 80s where they actually had conscription people uh, people from the army uh, conscription services yeah. outside the movie theaters waiting to sign people up on you know come up out of the theater hyped over what they've just seen and go yeah cool i want to do that yeah um, and i think as i understand it any film that includes military stuff like has to have to sign off of the military even now and uh, oh. um, might want to fact check that but i think that you know if you're making iron man or something and it features military stuff then they they need to kind of sign that off sign off interesting Um, and yeah so there's probably a lot of recruitment films out there so how did you go from uh being iceman to uh to composing (laughs) maverick obviously maverick sorry of course how Uh, how did you go from wanting to be maverick to uh composing well even then I would have been playing guitar because I, I started playing guitar when I was about five, six that, that I actually sort of picked it up or I, I couldn't really pick it up. So I played bass lines with my thumb on the E string on my dad's sort of old nylon string that was up in the in the roof, uh, like the loft, which wasn't converted. We But it would be go up some ladders, um, well, one ladder, not some ladders, <laughs> to uh, to this kind of space where dad had a load of old stuff and one of those things was his was his guitar and um yeah i just remember playing bass lines dad showed me how to play like money and like the bass line from like green onions and this stuff that he'd learned in the 60s when he had lessons and mm-hmm. dad didn't really play guitar much you know he'd had some lessons and he still had this old guitar but yeah i just i remember playing these bass lines it, it not being something that was difficult and being something that kind of made sense. Yeah, you put your thumb on here, it makes a different um, note. Mm. And just the, the the musical side of it, like, and, and I don't think this is anything that we sort of earn when we're young like this. It just made sense to me, you know, and I could play around. And then that led to, I think, having lessons when I was about six and that learning some open chords and stuff. I remember you couldn't have guitar lessons at my school until you were sort of seven or eight. But I think mum and dad managed to get me in earlier because I was sort of, you know, Charles enjoying prodigy. playing with the guitar. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just learning some open chords. And then again, I don't remember that ever being an effort. Like it was just fun to pick it up and play with it. And um, I definitely say that all of my route to music just comes through the guitar, essentially, you know, a, a relationship with the first instrument, being lucky enough to have that since then is is a way to, you know, build a relationship with tonality and rhythm and harmony and and just develop your ear. And, you know, I was always just experimenting and making stuff up from a really early age and figuring stuff out as well. I mean... Me and my friend Ben, Ben Walker, who I learned guitar with, who actually is a sort of folk award winning uh, musician himself these days. And um, we would like, we sort of figured out like 12 bar blues and stuff and, and the pentatonic scale. And we'd sort of jam before the lessons in primary school. And, nice. And um, yeah, it was just, and like I considered that to be entirely a non-earned sort of just fortunate lucky kind of gift thing to have you know that guitar there obviously have supportive parents that you know weren't in any way pushy but you know they saw Mm. that I liked something so they encouraged it and then just having the 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 pre-existing ear which I think is you know some Mm. people just don't have you can nurture it to some 
degree but i think that that's very much nature-based and has been proved to be so you know in terms yeah. of people that can hear pitch and and uh and you know and can and have a good sense of rhythm they're, they're quite separate things in some way um but um but yeah that's a very much a nature thing i think um, to a large degree and so at, at what point did you start to sort of think actually i might hang up my flying jacket and at what point did music sort of become a potential Hon- reality for a career yeah honestly um that is down to and i'd love to find this this lady now um but I, I guess she was quite a young lady came into our school to do careers advice one-to-ones when we're sort of 16 just doing our gcses or 15 or whatever and um she was just asking me questions about what I liked and what I enjoyed essentially. And, you know, as I said, I didn't do, uh, I said to you earlier off, um, off mic that, um, I didn't do music GCSE and, you know, I didn't, I did art GCSE and, and yeah, it, that was, she figured out that I enjoyed music and, um, suggested a popular music course, um, that they were doing in a nearby town, Stratford, Stratford upon Avon in the, midlands and yeah thanks to her i went and did this course that was sort of full-time music um Mm. i was in a band when i was 15 you know at that point and you know i i was doing things with music but the i just did not occur to me that it might be a viable career because i think certainly where i grew up that's not what people from evesham in the west midlands um Uh, do when they grow up you know I needed to get a proper job and earn some money and yeah it was she was encouraging identified something that I was obviously passionate about which was amazing and so I went to study music and then I think thinking about it seriously as a career obviously came with that and I remember panicking after like about two or three weeks because it felt like it was a bit of a kind of dos at the time and I wasn't doing something that was going to earn me any money and you know pursuing some kind of hobby and that's something to be fair my dad would say you know it's a hobby not a profession sort of thing and uh that's you know that's you know they my parents were always supportive but that there was a reality to that as well that um that I think was probably quite an important part of the way I thought about it like that's why I would have panicked and thought that I can't, you know, I'm not going to make a living out of this. I need to go and do maybe at least media studies or something. And um, Get a proper job, exactly a proper job. And um, now, you know, now obviously looking back, then I realise how fortunate I was to have something that I was interested in, and how actually my focus became quite singular after you know part way through that course specifically with the games side of things as well you know already at that point I like the idea the sort of dream of of being interested in in games you know playing games obviously at that time but thinking oh you you know someone's got to make music for these games and that just sounded like the coolest thing ever and that became yeah a pretty singular focus I think um since since maybe I was about 17 really so then so you presumably you finish your your music course, and I always sort of think this looking back as well. It, it's quite a difficult 
period in life when you kind of finish school or finish university because up until that point every single year has been mapped out you've you've known what you've been doing the following year there's been not really many unknowns all of a sudden you're sort of standing on the edge of the abyss where you've got your whole life ahead of you and you've literally mm. got you don't know what's what's going to happen how did you sort of take that focus and obviously sort of clear passion for music and sort of go and then turn that into career what was the progression what was the first job what was the mm. um, your experience in that well I went to university which was so that was obviously a continuation of that sort of education story but yeah I did you know you get spat out at the end of that experience and uh, again I mean I was very focused again on a goal you know the the idea of game audio music for games um was interesting and i was open to the sound design side of things as well so not just making music and i knew that i'd learned that you know getting into the games industry via the sound design route was uh, you know even if you you sort of preferred the idea of being a composer and making music for games was a good way to do that and and mm. i was you know, I had the audio production skills and, and like it interested me as well. And so, you know, I was, you know, post uni, I was, I think there's a couple of years where I was just living with my parents and I was teaching a bit of guitar for money. And, you know, I did work on one library project then and for a, a, a small production music library that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I was applying for games jobs you know, throughout that time. And that was more sound design focused for sure. Um, but I got involved in some free projects as well, like as in, you know, projects that would be advertised on websites that they're looking for a team to do something. It was low or no pay. And mm. one thing in particular was I worked on for three or four months that was no pay. And people often say, you know, don't, don't work for free, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in an ideal world, absolutely. But I mean, I took a gamble on working on something with these great guys uh, that were in Sweden. You know, it was the, the early days then of broadband internet. So that was just possible, you know, in 2003, four, And um, worked with these guys on a game project. And I did sound design stuff and I did music for it. And it was really nice. It was really polished and they pitched it. It never got made as a full production, but that gave me this lovely showreel material that actually then eventually got me my first in-house job um, at Blitz Games back in the day, which was just an absolute dream. You know, that was mainly sound design work. Um, uh, and I did sort of, I tried to show what I could do musically and that became, you know, com composition became a big part of what I did there. Um, but that was like a, a dream job, you know, like to go and actually get paid and, I remember in my first couple of weeks, it got to the weekend and I was like, I just wanted to keep going in and, and working on, on the game because it was just like, yeah, just completely opened up a whole experience of working professionally on games. And I learned so much and I'm so grateful to the, the three guys that worked there that, um, which was Matt Black, John Guscott and Rob Blake. They, you know, they're all very talented guys. And I realized later that how lucky I was, to get a job with these very talented musicians and sound designers and and they kind of mentored me a bit and yeah they you know i look on those days certainly the first year of that job was was amazing yeah it's interesting as well as somebody once told not well i heard somebody once say that with anything like this it's important to find find a fan 
um, because somebody who really likes what you do and is in a position to open doors mm. um, can be sort of like a huge asset. And, you know, essentially, I think this was more in relation to kind of um, the music industry, commercial music industry. But it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, those, first of all, you did a free project which whilst mm. that didn't come to anything, it gave you some showreel material, which isn't just like, oh, here's some stuff I did at uni. Um, but then these guys obviously heard that and thought this guy's got some talent and really liked what you did and then and gave you a, gave you a chance. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and to the point it, like about having a fan, I mean, it's, yeah, you're trying to, and I was lucky as well, you know, like, because those, I realise now that those are people who were really, on my wavelength and in it's kind of cause and effect, I guess, you know, it's because I'd applied to a bunch of places for jobs and heard nothing. I mean, obviously I might, what I did appealed to the people who were sort of appreciating what I did and they could see from my stuff that I was obviously a guitarist and stuff. And Matt was a guitarist and, and um, yeah, it, they obviously saw something in me and you know, I was so inexperienced and like even socially inexperienced. And I remember the intensity of that job and I felt like I was just surrounded by these really intelligent people. Like re- everyone there was so smart and on it uh, in a way that I'd never experienced before, not at university, you know, that was still had elements of a bit kind of uh, dossy and uh, sort of a certain, yeah, uh, like not necessarily being sort of as, as sort of focused in that way. And um, I had massive imposter syndrome with that stuff as well at the time in a certain way. I mean, I had some core self-belief as well, but like it was all about needing to up my game very quickly and, you know, sort of, uh, but what an amazing opportunity to, because had that not happened, you know, I'd like to think it would have in some other ways, but, you know, that's the point where somebody gives you the shot doing yeah. something and this is a, a small well not small but you know because they employed you know they went up to 200 people and you had those kind of game studios at that time and you, you have very few of those now but it was you know they were making mainly kids um nickelodeon licenses like spongebob and 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 tack and they're like various kind of you know playstation 2 era uh, stuff um but and I was getting paid you know I don't mind saying I was getting paid 17 grand a year on that job you know which back then was was okay, but you know it was you know in the Midlands that was okay. Uh, but it, it's you know I was on that for years as well um, before I sort of started to earn a bit more money with the senior roles yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting what you say as well about walking into this environment of inte- really intelligent professionals, industry professionals. The more I speak to people within the creative field, it's very hard not to have imposter syndrome ever, um, Mm. whether or not it gets easy with time. But within that environment, you chose to sort of go, okay, well, I can be intimidated by this or I can go, right, let me look at what they're doing and let me learn from them and sort of take as much from them as possible because obviously that's that's how you're going to get good at what you do is by learning from those that are amazing at it. Exactly. And it's almost like imposter syndrome of some kind is the pre-existing condition of successful people. And that's not a, an absolute statement, of course, but like I've found that a lot. You know, if you if you're entitled in some way and you feel like you're you're sort of, you know, you're destined in some way to to be successful, then that's not a good pre-existing um mindset for actually finding it like 
you know, it's imposter syndrome isn't maybe the quite quite the right word. It's it's a sort of yeah, like not knowing that you're you know that people around you are much better at this than you, and that you're going to have to really learn and you know and work hard and strive to to make yourself you know good enough to do this thing uh, yeah. you know it's it's a really it's a hard mindset i think as well because it's like relentlessly self-critical uh it's a constant feeling that you're not good enough which i would say i definitely have now uh, despite also having a logical part of my brain that knows that I am because I've performed well and <laughs> come up yeah. with the goods over and over again. But it's like, you know, in my head, like it, it's, it's, I mean, I hope it's okay to say this, but there's a inbuilt, actually a more humbleness as well to yeah. that I, within my own mind, I probably don't project that always. And I probably come across as being really confident with something, but I'm, I'm like, okay, so, I'm, you know, like, I can, I, can, I can probably do this, you know, like, uh, maybe this is a time when I can't do this, um, but, like, I'm going to try and, you know, get get my stuff together and get in the right mindset and, you know, and, yeah, I can do this. But it's not like, yeah, I can do this. It's like, it's a very sort of uh, a, a more subtle self-belief. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, yeah. it sounds like in that that instance with that company, you you approached it with a, a humility and a curiosity of wanting to sort of learn what you could, rather than sort of go in there and try and try and prove yourself. I mean, there might be an element of proving yourself, but and that sounds like definitely an element of proving yourself. And it is that is the flip side of it. You know, I'm not, it's not saying that ego is not part of it because it's a huge part of it. Um, but um, I'm definitely in my in in my sort of inner world. I'm not, I'm in a world that I don't understand that I'm not in any way feeling entitled to. And I'm sort of, I'm going to have to really up my game in every respect to kind of, you know, to, to sort of survive and, and, and thrive in this environment. You know, only the best people do that is, is the kind of, is the way that I would think about it. Um, yeah. And I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> Uh, and so we'd need to do a lot of kind of grafting to to try and you know mix yeah. with with these people yeah with the big boys and girls yeah i mean to be fair in those days it was it was it was probably a game development studio would be 90% guys 95 really? and yeah unfortunately is it is it still very male dominated now yes in certain types of studio but um luckily i work with the kind of studios that uh, I think, you know, getting on for 50-50 in some cases, like Media Molecule, us two. Um, and I take that for granted now. Um, and you notice it when it's not there, mm, you know, because sure. it, it's a very different vibe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we'll go into the skin of um, of Monu Monument Valley uh, in a minute. Mm. But in terms of, obviously, for young people out there who are interested in getting into music, and I suppose specifically composing uh, and well i suppose this is the thing because this is why you're a sort of a really interesting guest for the podcast because obviously i'm looking at the relationship between music and the moving image and generally mm. people think about sort of composers for tv and film but within that there's obviously lots of other areas of working with music and the moving image you know editors do that on a regular basis um music supervisors sync agents and obviously game composers and sound designers but for 
anybody who kind of young people aspiring composers who sort of want to follow a similar sort of path to you have you got any thoughts on and obviously it's a sort of perhaps a different landscape now but any advice on on ways that people can do that yeah i mean it is a different landscape and you know i do get asked this quite a lot um you know i'll I'll get messages from people via my website fairly regularly who've played something like Monument Valley or Altis Odyssey and they really love the music which is just awesome to get you know to know and get that direct feedback of people who um I think it's the nicest feedback you can get you know is like somebody not only enjoying it but also being inspired because they want to do something similar and in the way that I was inspired by people um you know when I was younger but yeah I think it's different now in the sense that there's probably and this is this can't be forced, but there's probably slightly more of a need to be doing your your thing um, and and be thinking about how you can slot into what is ultimately a very competitive world, and you know know your strengths within that. And because obviously it's a it's a given that people have got to work hard and be good at what they do, but it's not maybe enough to just want to do something well um it's like you know being trying to be in touch with what your strengths are and to play to them i think is probably more important than ever i don't think i thought as much like that and yeah it's weird i'm saying that because i think there's often an overemphasis on that you know on the the artist's way and you know, and I didn't have anything much to say, I have to say, until I was about 30 that might actually be, feel like actually creative expression of me. And um, because up until, mostly up until then, I was just interested in trying to make music that sounded professional, basically. <laughs> it yeah, sounded yeah. like, you know, it was well produced and it had good hooks in it. You know, I was working on a whole bunch of different genre based stuff but in those, in that early job at Blitz Games and, um, doing some library stuff as well and it's i just wanted to record good sounding guitars and and drums and just you know we did a sort of kung fu very sort of 70s i was reverse engineering sort of retro stuff and all this stuff that was really creative but it wasn't like my thing you know i was mostly genre composing in, in one way or another and um yeah so that underpinning i always say is really good so i'm sort of contradicting myself now like definitely have the aspiration to, you know, learn the, the sort of basic, the wider skills. Like don't, the, the first and foremost mindset isn't maybe uniqueness, but it, yeah, it, it is once you have that bedrock and which I do think anyone needs who wants to actually, you know, um, to make a living or be a professional, then yeah, you got to think about the kind of, projects you want to get involved in as well and at least have an idea about that you know i would love to work on a film like this and what you know finding people obviously who are like-minded you know finding your sort of realizing that you're probably on this creative wavelength and finding other people like you is going to serve you very well in that respect so that's definitely something that myself and i know other people have experienced yeah yeah um so there's a there's a focus there and sort of rather than just wanting to do and it's it's hard isn't it because when you do start out you kind of do want to try your hand at everything um but at the same time 
I remember I remember years ago I went to um a meetup for games composing and I realized very quickly in that room that I was I felt completely adrift because I wasn't really into games. This was at a time mm. when I was like, you know, just wanted work and our games composing seems quite cool. But I've never been a gamer. I've never really pl- played games other than, you know, multiplayer stuff. And in that room, it didn't feel right. Not in the same way as if I walk into a, a film meetup. Automatically there, there was a connection with everyone around me because I, I had that relationship to film. So I think it's interesting that you say kind of, it's playing to your strength to a certain extent, but also you've said this before about drawing on your influences, um, which is really interesting because Stephen Warbeck said something about that as well in terms of, and this is in terms of kind of focusing down on something and having a unique style. I think you massively have a very unique uh, and wonderful style about your music. In fact, I'd probably, I think if, if people played me a load of random tracks and there was some of yours that I'd not heard amongst them, I would be able to recognise them because I think you've got a very unique style, which I don't think is that easy to do. I think it's, as you say, it's like in the beginning, you're concentrating on the mechanics of how to produce, how to record, how to how to mix. And then once all of that sort of becomes second nature, then you can start to go, okay, how do I... I think you probably do always draw on your influences, but draw mm-hmm. them in a way that then you start to create something unique and a slightly, dare I say, reverence. I always talk about reverence, you know, de- doing things a bit differently. And I think that definitely shines through in in a, a lot of what what you're doing um yeah th- thanks i mean it like you said that doesn't come for me at least that doesn't come easily and and um it is difficult to do it and but it's not difficult for everyone because there no. were people that i went to university with who were just natural artists and mm. as in they were unique people and you know and they 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 were expressing stuff with their art their their music and it was, you know, it was really inspiring. And yeah. I was not doing that at all at that age. And like I said, it took me a long time to 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 have, in some ways, the confidence, but also the kind of life experience as well to feel like, you know, I was in a place where I could, yeah, like I could think, oh, I'm sort of, you know, I've, I've almost, I've kind of written about, tried to write about this a bit in some blog stuff I've done, you know, for, for Monument Valley, et cetera. But it's it's your unique combination of ideas rather than really. That's where the originality is. It's a subtle. It's not like you're plucking something completely new out of the air. That does happen rarely, uh, and in some sense, you're always doing that. And, and in another sense, you're never doing that as well. Because what what I think is unique about what I'm doing is that it's a unique combination of ideas sometimes, um, and I'm doing it in my way because uh, you know it there'll be a lot of people who make you know sort of modal electronic stuff for example but not all of them would have been listening to Zappa and Steve Vai and people like that in their teens like I was and not all of them will maybe have a first instrument like the guitar that they're quite as sort of obsessed with and have, have played in the same way um and yeah there'll be just whatever taste um magnets that you've been attracted to um that's a unique uh, journey for everybody for sure yeah yeah okay well that seems a good point then to go under the skin under the skin so we'll talk about monument valley too so talk us through your process so you get approached by a games company 
they want you to do the sort of sound design, create the atmosphere and the music for Monument Valley 2. Where, where do you start? Um, well, in that case, it's a sequel. And, you know, a lot of what I've actually worked on recently has been the same with Altos Odyssey. Uh, you actually, I have the, the fortune of seeing a completed version of a game that is something like the thing you're making. It's not going to be the same. But that's actually a bit of a a blessing, really, a bit of a gift in terms of if you're working on something completely new to work on Monument Valley One, which I didn't, then you'd be it would probably sound very different to what I did for two. Uh, and there was something established in its art style for sure in the audio that Stafford had done on on Monument Valley One that was had a you know a very sort of synth sort of drone based approach to it and i i liked parts of that um but obviously i had a lot of ideas about how i would make that different and um i mean interestingly what i did and this was a lovely thing to do at the start of that project was just spend a couple of weeks making a quick ideas sketch thing that was like an album of of music um that was you know and that was very early on before we knew what monument valley 2 was going to be so I actually, yeah, made a whole album, which we actually put out on Spotify as well. And, and it, nobody kind of knows about it because it was under like a pseudonym. It was it, it was Danny's idea, us two, to do that. And um, So like a, a Spotify a Spotify playlist of... And it's it's actually on as an album. Um, oh. it, it's it, like, because it's, it's not tagged as me as an artist, but some of the tracks on it are, became music on the game. And it just, it was basically like writing a, you know, a library album, if you like, of stuff that, mm. you know, was exploring. And it was really nice. It was really experimental. And I was just doing some quite dark stuff that, that, um, that, you know, wouldn't have gone in the game. And then exploring just some different sound palettes. And it allowed me to, yeah, get a little bit of, of a feel and figure out, you know, some musical style and combination and um and yeah that was a really nice bit of groundwork for can you remember the name of the album yeah i, I can we'll, i'll link to it in the show notes yeah do it's the, it was called early conceptual works and the the artist's name is sound circle i think so this is basically an album of your sort of your demos yeah yeah exactly it is and Amazing. the fact that we released it was just a kind of we wondered if you know it I don't know. We didn't even tweet about it. We just put it out. Um, I think it was almost like a bit of a PR experiment. You know, it was Danny thinking on it, and which sort of didn't work. But, yeah, it's here. Um, there's a whole 13-track album, and people, would, if they've heard the Monument Valley soundtrack, would recognise a few of the tracks on there, which are well, pretty there much you go. There's a little, little Easter egg, because I, yeah. I wasn't even aware of that. So I'm very interested to check that out. Okay, so you've created this this album, or you've created this sort of demo reel. You immersed yourself and experimented with different sounds, and sort of come up with a creative angle. And then, can just explain a little bit about Monument Valley as well for anyone, because obviously you've moved through multiple levels. You're on this sort of little journey. Can you just explain a bit what it is, and then also then how you went about addressing music track, music and sound design for each each level? Yeah, well, it's a story ultimately, and I think it is a more narrative driven game than the original. Um, uh, it's quite a, a sort of clean story of a, a mother and child um, who 
with a sort of coming of age element to it where at, at sort of the end of act one the child essentially leaves and goes off to grow up and have experiences of their own and interestingly it chooses to stay with the mother rather than show the child's adventure we you do kind of pick that up again later in the story but it has a nice focus on a the mother experiencing life without her child which obviously as a motherhood story which it was meant to be is a big component um you know the child obviously becomes your life and then it, you know you regaining that life as the child becomes more independent is a really i think a nice kind of pivot point around a motherhood story i think i was you know to be honest that it, that game came together very quickly so like realizing like nuanced ideas in the score was more by instinct than by planning and if for example interwoven stories which is one of the kind of title tracks uh, along with the trailer track of the the kind of branded tracks you know that actually gets its name from a point in the development where that game the mother child story was one of i think five other small short stories that was going to be Monument Valley 2. It was going to be like five different stories with a lot more bigger scale and ambitious. And um, it happened that it just worked. And, you know, thematically, the interwoven stories of the, the child and the mother, like, it, and, you know, and it was, a, it was a track that I made early on again, you know, after that, doing that, that concept album, if you like. But yeah. it did form a basis of the sound of the game because people liked it. And I think it was influencing the tone yeah. of the game, you know, as the art was being developed and the music was being developed, being developed, then that these things kind of, you know, you do, they solidify to form a thing. And, um, yeah. And, you know, in terms of what I'm doing, you know, there's, there's obvious moments there, like there's obvious emotional things to punctuate, you know, the moment when the child leaves, I think is one that a lot of people call out as being like, you know, it's some people cry when they play that bit and which is lovely mm. in a good way. And, um, and I actually really love the level just after that because that's when we the mother's alone for the first time, and the the art that David did on that level is grayscale basically. So it's uh, you know it's black and white, just pale world, and it's empty. And so with this, both the music and the sounds in that section, I, I pretty much go to kind of noise, and I take the tonality out of the, the navigation ping, which you when you click to move the player so it's just this kind of noisy crackly thing and then slowly he introduces it's like a moment of em- the feeling of emptiness that, that that you might experience in that moment and then color starts to come back into the world and i'm sort of trying to follow that from going from essentially like noise based to to tonality and um so yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. But I think the reunion moment as well is another key thing that's punctuated, and that's probably one of the most scored sequences. It has a like a sort of piano strings thing going on there. It's it's the most kind of Hollywood moment, if you like, in that game. Mm. And um, yeah, and then a lot of it was just you know trying to do more broad strokes, kind of expressionist sort of stuff, in the same way that the art was. You know, they were. They were just, you know, there's a point in the game where you're just basically on a cake, a bit or three cakes floating in some pink void, and it's abstract. And 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 that's, I think the music, again, was I thinking about this at the time? Probably not. But I, it just was natural to just be more experimental than I usually would be. And 
uh, just go with whatever I think is, you know, is going to fit with that imagery uh, in the same way that I don't think the cake has any specific relevance. Um, I might be wrong there. Um, but it's, it, you know, it, there's always with Monument Valley, there's a room to just um, be playful, I think, with the with the creative side, the aesthetic side of it. Yeah. And to, to what extent are you kind of relying on the visuals to inform what's happening with the music? Do you sort of sit there composing whilst with the visuals sort of running in the background or do you sort of tend to switch them off? Absolutely, as much as possible. Yeah, if it's a screenshot or if it's a bit of video capture from... And obviously with a game, this is often work in progress as well, which is, you get that in film, but, um, you know, an early cut of something in film is at least the, you know, it's coming out of the, the same material that will be edited in a game often big things can change and do change very late um but yeah absolutely i feed off i feed off narrative and i feed off visual like um tone Hmm. and like without that i feel yeah i I enjoy doing that more and you know perhaps when you talk about you know making music for the sake of music uh, uh, as a separate subject but Ultimately, I, I enjoy doing something that's part of a story and part of a bigger tone. Um, I like making music in that context probably mm. more than I like, certainly on my own, um, just trying to just make music, which is can be fun, but, you know, in, and I can make my own story up, but it's, it's just more, you know, it, it's more fulfilling for me to be part of a, a wider thing that is telling a story. And, yeah. and I'm feeding off obviously narrative there and, and the the tone and, and the taste and which is really important. Yeah. That's really interesting because it's obviously, you know, when it comes to writing music for, for TV and film, it's 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 quite obvious that you're uh, you're following a narrative, but it's also true that in games there seem is that always the case that there's a you're you're serving a narrative or is it just on specific games? Yeah, it depends on the definition of narrative, but um, it's definitely not always the case, no. Um, But, you know, if you play Tetris, then there's a narrative of you start playing the level and there's, you know, there's no blocks on the screen and then you'll start putting blocks down and then at some point things will probably get quite difficult and then, you know, maybe you'll recover from that and then then you'll, you know, maybe you'll recover twice on Tetris from being nearly, you know, dead or whatever you call it when you, they, the blocks go to the top but the music a, speeds up doesn't it and changes so yeah. it sort of like adds that level of tension absolutely and on the more recent tetris games and and the original in fact isn't it double speed when you get to exactly yeah so that's a narrative you know it's not exactly a narrative in the same way that i'm talking about monument valley and it's not a narrative in the same way that you talk about the last of us which is essentially you know you'd compare that to a movie um and yeah, it, it does always depends on your definition of narrative, but yeah, of course, there's a, a player journey of some kind involved in every game experience, and you're looking at how you can support that. And yeah, I'm I'm happy to call that narrative, you know, in the in the sense of you know Tetris. And just touching on something you mentioned earlier as well about obviously Monument Valley, there was a that it was Monument Valley two that you worked on, and the, the being in a Monument Valley. Um, and it sounds like the the process is a little bit different because obviously there has to be a deference to what's come before. So how does that then compare to something, say, like 
uh, Alto's Odyssey, whereby you're sort of starting, you know, you've got carte blanche, you can do whatever you want. How does that change your process? So Alto's Odyssey is a sequel as well. Land's End is an example of something that's completely new, um, which I did with us too. And yeah, that is a different feeling. Um, and it's one that I have to say, you know, I very much have enjoyed working on being the Monument Valley 2 guy and the Alto's Odyssey guy. But I'm craving, certainly in what I'm looking for in projects now, is to be working on something new. And and I think when I think about Land's End, that was a very enjoyable thing to work on. I probably enjoyed working on that as much, if not more, than anything I've worked on. And that was probably partly because it was creating something from scratch and it was a new world. And and yeah, and to your point about dreams, that's entirely a new world. Um, I suppose the main difference there is I'm part of a team of people. I'm one, I, I did a lot of the key sort of branded sound of that game. You know, the, the whole, when you first play the game, everything you're hearing in the first sort of five minute intro is my work. And, but you know, that's such a huge project that goes beyond composition. And there's a lot of talented mu- musicians and, and audio people working on that that contributed to you know, a whole bunch of, you know, that's a creative platform, not just the music in it, but the um, the tools that, that other people will use to make their own music. And so I was working on instrument design for that, for example. So that's a completely different mindset that in closer to people who make software instruments, you know, who make contact libraries or, you know, a lot of the work I did on that was, which was super fun, was building instruments for other people to be creative with. Um, a whole other world and it's it seems as i mean i i always like this in in certainly in film when there's there's a very blurred line between music and sound design where those two worlds kind of meld together it certainly sounds like given that you are a sound designer and a composer and certainly within monument valley it felt like those those two worlds definitely converged is that something that you'll try to bring to each project as well i think that what you just said there you know if people if I have a thing, then that's definitely, you know, I think one of the main things that I'm doing and one of the main things that I'm talking about in relation to my work often is that within a team, you know, if I'm working with people, then I'm trying to get, a, you know, people to think about those things as being more interrelated than they often are in games. Um, yeah. Because it's fun. You know, Monument Valley is a perfect platform to do that, but... You know, films are doing that all the time, like you say, and and they're choreographed. And I see little reason to think about these disciplines as being separate, um, ultimately. Uh, logistically, they often have to be because, you know, one person can't always do everything. But all the work I did in Dreams, in Monument Valley, Land's End, Altus Odyssey, they, there's a lot of tonality in what's happening sound design-wise, um and you know the music could be considered to be sound design in many places as well Mm. you know it's not it would be more textural and very minimal and you know is just a drone in e considered music yes of course it can be but (laughs) it's you know some people you know when editing a film then there'll be drones and tone stuff that is considered sound design which is not you know what the composer's been working on like i I see just it's absolutely just a simple logic to me is that this is all part of the same wider composition essentially 
um, you can think of the whole thing as one piece of music or one piece of sound design. And yeah, it's really fun. And, you know, hearing the work that Martin Stig Anderson did on Limbo and Inside, those are two games that, to me, if you're going to, those are the examples of, you know, they're very, they're, they're probably, people would say they're more weighted towards what you would call sound design. But, there's some beautiful tonality in what he's doing as well, really minimal. And in terms of how it, the whole thing's being woven together, uh, you know, to tell a story. And the in the case of Inside, the way it becomes integral even to the gameplay, uh, that's really inspiring stuff for me, I think. And, and um, yeah, I'm trying to do that. Usually I've, I've been trying to do that on, on most of the projects I've worked on in the last, you know, in my freelance years, which has been the last sort of eight years or so. Yeah, sure. Um, so obviously it's very easy to kind of find the successes in the life and times of, of Todd Baker, but I always think some of the, the, the experiences from which we learn the most are actually the failures, the places where we sort of come up short. Have you got an example of like the kind of the biggest mistake you've ever made or a couple of mistakes that you've made and, and what what were the learnings from those assuming assuming you do make mistakes <laughs> yeah i mean i just i see so i do see very clear i've had ve- a lot of very difficult experiences working in certain situations especially with certain people um and more more not so much personal like that but actually you know in bigger companies where the the kind of bosses of the companies i don't you know there's some kind of um clash in or you know and i don't think i've been the only one feeling that it's been part of a usually part of a bigger problem and there's a lot to learn from with that i think that you know this comes down to what i always talk about as a wavelength thing and you learn a lot from working in a situation where you don't feel like you're able to do your thing you feel possibly underappreciated in some ways or you feel like you're you know you're not yeah you're not able to even do the things that would earn the respect of somebody and stuff and these are all the indicators of you're doing the wrong thing you know you're not working with the right people essentially mm. um this is this happens often in big companies because it's really hard to get 200 people or you know in maybe 100 people working on one project that are actually creatively aligned in a significant way um so that's a massive you know i've had tough times when you know you just you feel like i'm not creatively inspired i'm not doing you know i might have the respect of my immediate peers in the audio department but you know it's not i'm not really able to do my thing in a wider context and it's frustrating and stuff like that um what's helped you navigate that um Mainly, I mean, I've definitely made mistakes and the mistakes would be staying in that situation for too long. So what helps is in hindsight, noticing that and then knowing when to say, I need to do something else. (laughs) And, you know, financial reasons, personal reasons might make that very difficult. And they have done for me in the past. Um, But... You, you know, if you really, if you have a, a sort of, you've had experience of things being good, which everyone needs to find in their own way. And then at some point things are bad. 
then you need to figure out what was good about the old stuff. It sounds simple. And what's not working about, you know, the thing that you're doing and and then find the way to make some positive changes. And, you know, that, that comes with a huge amount of anxiety and, uh, you know, and, you know, tentative, you know, am I doing the right thing? Can I afford literally or, or psychologically to um, make this, you know, to drop this thing because it's, you know, it is maybe it's paying the wage or, you know, and, but yeah, I mean, yeah, learning the situations that you work best in. And I think that the center piece of that is the people you're working with yeah. and trying to work with people. And my experience from, from the lows of the worst situation I've been in is you know, I managed somehow to turn that around to a point where I then, you know, a year or, or so later, I'm working with a studio like Media Molecule, where the ease of being in that situation, surrounded by just amazing people who are mm. so supportive and so positive about what you're doing, and the confidence feedback loop that that brings. Yeah is just like so relieving because <laughs> yeah. you're like oh i was i was right that i felt bad in that situation previously um or, or it was right for me at least yeah. the, the same could be said for you know personal life as well is like the people that you surround yourself very much goes you know to informing how you are on a daily basis and and it, i suppose it ties in with what you were saying as well before about like you felt your uh, thing you said about the age of 30 you felt like you'd sort of you had the mechanics of making music down and then and you had the life experience to be en- able to then kind of inform stylistically what what you were doing and what you were about and I, it's interesting because it just highlights the sort of whilst we tend to think of sort of our work life and, and personal life as separate actually they're, they're hugely interlinked and 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 something negative going on in one can affect the other so actually looking at it from a more holistic point of view um probably makes and having that awareness, like you say, like, okay, that didn't work for me. What was, what didn't work? And that, that was amazing. What was right about it? So that hopefully then going forward, you can try and, you know, avoid the negatives and, and sort of bring more of the positives. Yeah. It's just so right. And it's, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But like that, these things are often so emotionally complex. Um, but that's exactly it. And you're so right to, you know, the environment as well, you know, moving city for me is probably the biggest explanation of I can talk about, you know, my approach to the music in Monument Valley too. But that's so intrinsically tied with with a period of my life working with us two when I first moved to London and an evolution of relationships and and friendships with people in that studio. And, you know, that that makes the music sound different, um, ultimately, because my whole life experience is... It vastly different to what it was some years before when you know when I was living in a different city and things were I was in a different relationship and things were you know quieter and yeah, yeah. It, it's fascinating that's it really is an advertisement as well for in terms of creativity a, a kind of a rich a richness of life experience all feeds into so to your creativity because it's all too easy to sort of get bogged down into, into routine and what have you but interesting you say that even moving house or a relationship you're in or whatever's going on in your social life that kind of all feeds back into you individually so therefore actually in what you're doing creatively so um rich life experiences where creativity thrives 
You know, absolutely. And that doesn't, you know, for some people that's traveling the world and, you know, like any experience of different cultures and stuff. And some people, yeah, like that's, um, you know, different, difficult relationships or in something closer to home. And uh, yeah, that that takes, you know, variation in and richness of life experience takes many different forms. And I think it's good, obviously, having a bit of all of those things, uh, which is kind of what I've tried to do. I think you know, you know, seeing seeing other places in the world, like really getting yourself out of your own head and realizing the bubble you live in when you're in the, the Nepalese mountains or whatever is is very valuable. Um, but you know, there's you know, interpersonal relationships and difficult times or good times in that respect is very character building as well yeah yeah definitely cool okay well let's i think it's time to uh, get a taste getting a taste (laughs) something obviously we haven't talked about uh thus far as your involvement in the lydian collective um which may feed directly into this sort of the, the kind of next segment which is what I know those, this is very difficult to sort of answer generally, but what resonates with you musically? What, whilst I understand you probably have an appreciation of an eclectic blend of different music and things like that, what what just just makes you want to go, yes! Mm. It's got two different axes, that thing for me. On the one hand, like, I love just a really good harmonic um pop hook of some kind and when i say pop hook i'm referring to a steve Vai riff as much as i'm referring to a michael jackson you know quincy jones era tune that is just like harmonically beautiful and the arrangements and and the, the harmony is just triggering that thing in my brain uh, i love modal harmony and you know just nice things like steely dan that are again it's kind of pop but it's like it's on the edge of jazz and like you know there's these these fruity chords that that just just sound lovely and they trigger that thing in your brain and then the other end of the thing for me is closer to this storytelling thing and and what I'm doing professionally and what I love to do it's like a moment in a film and it might not be a musically a thing that I would spend time listening to you know in its own right but some deep emotion is being conjured that is really channeling through what's happening in terms of a soundtrack or some, you know, audio mm. cue and stuff like that. And that can, that, that like inspires me deeply, you know, like, and, and I love, it gives me a different type of experience, but it, it is, you know, it's bigger than music, but it, it's, it obviously it's very music based in, in the way that I'm feeling about it at the time. Yeah. Well, so you met, you've mentioned Steely Dan, you sort of mentioned Quincy Jones and the sort of kind of Michael Jackson. Are there kind of like specific that you can think of at the moment, seminal albums from, you know, going back to when you were a young child to sort of today, which you sort of credit with having a... Because as well, you, we were talking about this on drawing on influences into sort of mm. doing something unique, but are there certain seminal albums you can name from your... There's loads, um, and there's specific tracks as well, and some of them are quite obscure. But, I mean, the album that I, I would say is my favourite album for a variety of reasons is just my sort of teenage guitar hero, one of my teenage guitar heroes, Steve Vai, the Passion and Warfare album is just like just pure like creativity to me. It's like it's in that's as close as inventing a new style of music 
as you get, you know, I was saying about originality earlier. And of course he was totally combining his influences at that point. And this was an album he thought that nobody would give a crap about. It was, you know, he literally thought having been in these big eighties bands with David Lee Roth, whoever it was that, you know, and being a bit of a rock star, that this was his kind of side passion project. But that was an that was a you know people talk about an artist actualization or whatever self-realization uh, mm-hmm. you know that's an example of somebody just making the music that he had in his head and i didn't know any of this you know i wasn't thinking about it on this level when i was 12 or whenever i first heard that but there's something just so special about that that was not like anything i was listening to at the time mm-hmm. and it's you know it's a wailing guitar album but it's compositionally just absolutely incredible as well and i still think and you know i was lucky enough to see in 2016 he performed that whole album in the 25th anniversary i think in london and i still love that music as much now as i did back in the day you know and people might be who've heard my you know sort of often quite chill Monument Valley-esque stuff, um, <laughs> you know, m- might be surprised to hear that. Um, I think that those kind of influences come through more in something like the Alters Odyssey stuff. You know, it's a lot more muso-y and it's weird time signatures and, you know, this harmonic stuff. And yeah, and certainly the band as well is, is an expression of that stuff. Yeah, they, well, they I was, was going to say, I mean, certainly from my point of view, you know, I I know Todd Belter can... Uh, Todd Belter. Belter, I know uh, Todd, uh, <laughs> I know Todd Todd Baker can can uh, belt out a face melter, ah. uh, a sh- shredder face melter <laughs> with, with the best of them. So, um, um, but yeah, and it's interesting as well as a fellow guitarist. You know, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani. There was a kind of virtuosity to their guitar playing, which was just sort of like mesmerising when you're kind of learning Guns and Roses riffs and things like that as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's modal harmony that they—that's mm-hmm. the centerpiece of their composition as well. Uh, and you know, just the most. Lydian-y stuff, the most Dorian-y stuff, and coaxing just absolute beauty out of these modes, and and in doing interesting shifts with that, you know, in their composition, and so that, uh, you know, it's in pop anyway, but they have a certain way of approaching that stuff. I think that is just wired into my brain as an influence. Yeah, sure. Um, what else? Any other albums? I mean, I'm undoubtedly influenced by a lot of electronic stuff you know and and this is stuff that i wouldn't listen to these days but you know back in the day listening to left field or something like that was was like a a massive influence and i don't really listen to that stuff now um but the minimalism and i think that we're seeing a lot of the you know film composers and people like myself who grew up in the 90s on a lot of electronic stuff which is essentially a a big popular wave of minimalism a lot of it you know sort of quite repetitive you know drum loops and breaks and stuff and a lot of that stuff um there's specific tracks like there's this one track by howie b which in on a 90s album i think it's called limbo and it's just like it wouldn't sound particularly groundbreaking now but at the time it was so it's so warm and so sort of slightly saturated and interesting sonically that like something like that I would slightly obsess over and it and a lot of the music I was creating at uni was sort of trying to be a bit like that track um but there's so much stuff and and on the soundtrack side um the one that I think of a lot um again this would not sound this would sound 
you listen to the soundtrack in isolation and it feels like so much music you would see on drama stuff these days. I still think it's very beautiful and, and perfectly executed for what it was, but the the American remake of Solaris with George Clooney, which I love that film. And then it's, I think Cliff Martinez did this score for that, which was minimalist um, metallic percussion. Like, I think gamelan, possibly steel drums, I think are quite in the mix, like used softly. I think it was before like hang drum, like, you know, hand pan type instruments, but it sounds like that. And of course, like hang drum, you know, stuff gets used all the time now. But yeah, uh, yeah, at the time in whenever it was, 2002 maybe, or even before then, maybe 2001. I mean, it was it was so, like, that married with the visuals of this planet, and because I, I love my sci-fi, you know, is, like, I just such a deep, resonant experience. And I, I'm sure if, if anybody who might have listened to my recent work and you listen to that, there, there's a an obvious link in, in its sort of emotional tone. And, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I might be wrong, and I will fact-check myself on this, but I seem to think that for that score, Cliff Martinez had literally just got a load of steel pans or sort of like metallic percussion stuff, and he decided, like, okay, I'm going to do the whole score on... on the, I think so. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. you're right. I mean, that would make sense. And it is... At the time, I thought it was just inspired because he's got these deep sub-bass things that he uses in it as well, and that is entirely my thing, and I do this all the time. Mm. I'll have some minimalist cyclic thing moving... And then quite a deep sustaining bass line that moves underneath it and sort of changes the, the harmonic modal context of that. Mm. Like, you know, floating around some Dorian, Lydian thing. And that's, it's not complicated. I mean, a lot of pops doing exactly the same thing. But like the richness of, of a like really nice sonic pan- palette doing something cyclic and minimalist mm. with a deep sub bass tone. <laughs> I think that's massively. And that, that Howie B track was a bit that as well. Um, yeah interesting um so you touched on earlier about you know music providing it's an emotional language and you're, you're sort of connect you know connecting people with whatever medium they're watching whether it be games or tv film is there is there a piece of music or pieces of music which kind of bring can almost bring you to tears absolutely yeah um yeah um music in its own right that does that you know, some something like Katrina McKay, who's a Scottish harp composer and, and player. Um, you know, there's a few of her compositions. It's this beautiful Celtic folk that is just so deep and um, and resonates with me so much. It's music in its own right that just can certainly make me feel very emotional. Um, I think that yeah, often to really kind of get tears going, I, I then I jump to the kind of um, film reference stuff as well, and then, and sometimes it's like you know you can't separate it from the story then, so it's music and so right, but there is music. Just you can listen to. I can listen to Jurassic Park, that main hook the dun 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 dun. like seeing that perform live as well which i have like once or twice i just start kind of getting all teared up because it's like it's fucking perfect excuse my language is is perfect yeah and like it's so exciting and so it makes me well up now thinking about it it's so beautiful 
Um, it's it's, um, it's uh, John Williams, isn't it? It's, um, he has exactly the same effect to me, Jurassic Park, but certainly Star Wars, you know, it just... And as you say as well, I think it's interesting because it's it's married to a, a time of nostalgia and it's married to the, the film as well, but I, that speaks to kind of like the power of music and actually, you know, each of those things you know visuals and music in their own right are powerful but when they combine there's kind of this sort of synergy and yeah to be able to just like just tears streaming down your streaks as you sort of listen to an orchestra playing it live and i think just to go back to you know i think it is important to separate music out when you talk about this as well and think what purely musical experiences can conjure that kind of emotion because there's some real magic going on when that does happen and you know i think about there's a performance that might still be on youtube of hiromi the Japanese pianist composer doing a, a track called Place to Be, I think it's called, A Place to Be or just Place to Be. And she, I mean, she it's quite a thing to watch because she's actually crying as she's playing it, you know. And there's a recorded studio version of that track, which is nice, but it's nowhere near what you that live particular live performance um, captures. And my goodness, I mean, same with the Katrina McKay track um pierre ben susan uh, you know had, uh, an acoustic guitarist who's massively influential on me in you know in my 20s i started finger picking on acoustic and, and tuning into dadgad on the acoustic guitar and stuff and um, composing as well for solo acoustic guitar of you know again quite separate from my games work and the soundtrack stuff that might be familiar there's stuff on, on youtube of me playing my solo guitar stuff um, that I'm still really proud of. And, and Pierre Ben Susan was a huge influence with that. And his, you know, his ear for harmony and his just tenderness. And he, he does a certain Celtic thing and a certain nostalgic thing as well. It just music in its own right, you know, and both him and Hiromi doing this as a single person on an instrument, um, they're, they're real masters. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible what you say as well, isn't it, about the fact that she was actually crying whilst performing it, because that... Which some people struggle with, you know. Some people struggle to watch something like that and find it somehow a bit, I don't know, it's not pretentious, but, like, find it a little bit, like, much. Yeah. But but, but to my mind, that's, that's, that's what powerful musical performance is about. That's why, you know, lover or hater Adele, when she sings about loss you believe her mm. she's performing it she makes you feel like she's feeling it at that moment when she's singing it and i always think that with 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 a great performance and interesting something i touched on with them um, in the steve stephen warbeck interview was how actually nowadays sometimes because we're working in computers and we're working to click tracks that can actually sometimes be hold us back because by sticking to a rigid sort of tempo map doesn't allow the kind of the freedom obviously it makes life a lot easier from a technical point of view but doesn't allow quite the same freedom of expression around and actually just being conscious of that certainly when it comes to sort of an incredibly emotive performance can can go a long way to capturing you know completely and nothing's taught me more about that than playing and recording with the band with Lydian Collective because we still have learned are learning all the time about what actually captures a good performance and um often a producer is has the role of trying to make that happen and we record and produce our own stuff which makes that particularly difficult sometimes but yeah uh, it's absolutely bizarre the way that you know you can have a what feels like a technically accurate or 
you know, you're feeling it, but it, it, it won't sound anything like when you were, you know, on stage at the Green Man Festival and playing it with a, this whole other level of energy. And, you know, it is, like you say about a click track, undoubtedly that being confining yourself in that way um, is is can really suck the life out of stuff. Um, but sometimes not, you know, like I mentioned Steely Dan, they recorded to click a lot. But it sounds a certain way. And interestingly, seeing some of that music recently performed by a sort of project of London session people at Ronnie Scott's, the Steely Dan project, I think they're called the Royal Scammers. And they are performing the music as it was in the studio. And and this music that I've you've loved for ages and I've never seen it live. I mean, Steely Dan did perform that stuff in the 90s and later but it wasn't the same really it was a different thing with different musicians and these guys just do it as it was on the record but you hear it live and it isolates that difference and it's like this is better you know this is a i love this music already and the studio's great but you hear it perform live with that energy and the, the tempo shifts and the and the you know the volume to some degree as well and it's the energy is incredible you know, the way it brings it to life Definitely. And it's, I always talk about it's been, it's, it's the imperfections that we love, you know, the imperfection in rhythm is the groove, the imperfection of, but it's also the, and anyone who hasn't seen the Lydian Collective play live, I would massively, I know I'm not saying this just because you're uh, on the podcast that, you know, I've been to a lot of your gigs and um, the energy of, you, you know, you rehearse and you are so tight, but at the same time, there is a an energy which is just, you can't be denied when you guys play live on stage. But actually, I think having said that, I do actually think you have done really well in capturing that energy on your albums as well, because I think all too often there's, there's a, there's a huge cavern of difference between sort of what's been captured in the studio versus what you hear on stage. Um, and whilst there is a difference with that, I think there is a, there's a, you've done really well in capturing the energy in the studio when you're recording the band, because obviously it's kind of, am I right in thinking it was born first and foremost out of playing live rather than recording? The composition, or well, well, the just Lydian Collective didn't did it form around sort of you guys playing live rather than sort of mm, like no, it was performed no. out of no, it's compositions that existed before really a lot of okay. Aaron stuff. Obviously, you know he's writing sort of seventy percent of the stuff or seventy five percent of the stuff, and we it, the music that we'd made together and individually was the kind of root for that. But yeah, certainly turning them into band arrangements is a is a process that happens when we're together and it's a really nice process to, you know, put something together in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, it's nice that you say that it comes across. I think that, you know, you see criticisms of the the first album we did that say it's a bit kind of, you know, it can be a bit too kind of clean or regimented. And I, I think we all get that. Certainly Aaron and I definitely get that, that criticism and actually the second album which we've you know been working on which is pretty much ready um to be released soon um you know i think there's a confidence about it where the looseness and a bit of chaos thrown in there is is in better balance in in my to my taste at least uh and you know the some of the tracks i think work better than others on the first album and that's probably true of this but i think yeah, there's a, there's a slightly more confident way of going about recording, going with a take. There, there'll be a lot more imperfections on it in its own way, um, which hopefully would be welcome to a listener. What, when is the new album out? 
Uh, we don't have a release date yet, but it it's probably probably early next year, I would imagine. Okay, um, have you got a title ready for it yet? Uh, we have, and it ha- hasn't been sort of put out there yet. Um, I, I don't want to I don't want to jump the gun on that one, but because um, it, yeah, it's not super confirmed. But yeah, okay. But well, watch this space for 2022, beginning of 2022, new Lydian Collective. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. I'll ask you where whereabouts we can sort of find all this. Um, just before we sort of wrap up, I've got a sort of few quick fire. I've got a trivia question for you. I like to do a bit of trivia in terms of I'm always kind of obsessed with like weird random facts about sort of film or music. Um, and obviously there's one specific about Monument Valley, which I'm pretty sure uh, you'll know the answer to, but uh, which uh, popular TV series did Monument Valley appear in? I do know this because it's um, House of Cards, isn't it? Yes. With uh, Kevin Spacey playing. I've Frank never watched Underwood. it, but uh, there's a scene where he plays. Yeah, it's the, the original Monument Valley one. Um, yeah. And he, isn't he playing it on like the sofa or something? And in the Oval Office or something. Yeah, yeah it's like literally yeah. in the White House sort of killing his bit of downtime playing Monument yeah. Valley, which is great. Um, and another bit of trivia I had. Have you got any trivia that you'd like to throw in? I'm, you got anything? I totally suck at this kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't. I kind of don't absorb it, I guess. It's always interesting, but I don't absorb those kind of facts. Oh, I but, have a, yeah, hit, hit a me great, up with some more. A great, great retention of kind of irrelevant minutiae. Um, <laughs> Okay, here's a cool sound design one related to Terminator 2. So Terminator 2, the T-1000, played by Robert Patrick, he's in the mental institute where uh, there's a rescue mission for Sarah Connor going on, Mm. and he walks through the bars, the liquid metal, he walks through the bars. Mm. Um, Do you know what was used for the sound of him, the metal, moving through the bars? Yeah, I have heard this before, you know. Um, someone gave me that, me. <laughs> that bit of bit of bit of trivia. It might have been from you, um, uh, but yeah, I don't. And is it is it something unusual? Uh, it's something, yeah. Very. It kind of ruins the sort of magic. Is it is it synthesized? <laughs> no, no. It's not like a low synth sweep or something. It's no. very. I remember it. It's very tactile and and gloopy, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually a can of inverted dog food. <laughs> There you go. So literally just foley mic'd up some dog food sliding out of a tin. Um, so yeah, yeah, try watching that scene again now without sort of going, like, being able to smell dog food. Oh, God, yeah. No, um, I, now you say it, it doesn't It doesn't ring a bell. But yeah, I can imagine it just the way it slops out of the can with that little bit of sort of captured air thing. Yeah. It would it'd be a good one. Absolutely. Nice. I like it. Um, and just a couple of, uh, couple of quick 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 fire questions um to finish finish off with little known fact about todd baker little known fact about me um oh i i don't read or write music i can't read notation wow i mean i know the system in terms of like i know what a crotch is i know whether that it's you know f-a-c-e or whatever but yeah you know that that you know, probably somebody who heard something like my Arto's Odyssey stuff, and people ask for the score um, yeah. because they want to perform it, which is really humbling and lovely, but <laughs> there isn't a score. And, you know, when I've had that stuff done, someone else has done it. So that might be an interesting one. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm much more in the camp of playing by ear rather than sort of like the theory side of things. And I, I kind of defend my position in, on the back on a basis that, you know, if music is meant to elicit an emotion actually how it feels and how it sounds is is more important than 
the theory side of it. Um, but as I say, that's just my get out for being, I almost blew my music theory when it came to getting my grade eight on my saxophone. Um, just because it seems counterintuitive to sort of, it's the mathematical side of things. Um, and it was, you, you mentioned earlier as well about, you know, you just, with, with the music, you just got it. There's that brilliant scene in, um, um, Goodwill Hunting, where Mini Driver and, and Matt Damon. Matt Damon is obviously the sort of the math maths wizard, mm-hmm. and Mini Driver uh, plays the piano, and, and in a way that Matt Damon can look. Well, not Matt Damon can't, but his character can look <laughs> at this sort of like complex board of, uh, of mathematical formula and just get it. Mm-hmm. And whilst Mini Driver sees nothing, she just sort of looks at a piano keyboard and, and just gets it. Whereas mm-hmm. to Matt, Matt Damon, it means nothing. And I think is this almost left brain right brain element to that almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What scares Todd Baker? Um, doing podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, or I, as I'm calling it, Toddcast. Nice, I like it. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, people. <laughs> <laughs> people, people are pretty scary. Uh, uh, who I absolutely need and love, um, but yeah, most of my anxiety is is social, definitely. Right, yeah. about people, yeah. um, and and finally. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? <sighs> Don't be scared of people. Don't be scared. I mean, give less of a fuck. Uh, again, excuse my language, but but like, yes, I would like somebody to have said that to me a lot sooner. Um, and it obviously doesn't mean in relation to the people you care about and what you care about in the world. But yeah, there, there's definitely a place for sensitive, creative people to go to, which is very unhealthy um, when it comes to your a level of caring it, that that can be self-destructive and and about yourself by all means. You know, I'm not saying it's some kind of altruistic thing. It's like it's a it's very much entangled in the ego and and you know your own self-expectation and relentless sort of self-improvement you know it's a common thing but somehow yeah like do things with passion and intensity but like have some level of detachment from it where you 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 give less of a shit and that has to be part of the mix sometimes because otherwise you just you tear yourself into pieces and many people do Yeah. yeah sound sound advice um, so Todd, if people want to find you, I mean, I'm going to really put, there's a lot of references you've made throughout the, um, the chat about different music, which I'm going to put show no- links to in the show notes. But if people want to find Todd Baker, the Lydian Collective, where do they go? Yeah. So with Lydian Collective stuff, then uh, a quick Google search will throw up, you know, websites and any gigs that, that we have in the diary. But for myself, um, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm at the Todd Baker, the Todd Baker on Twitter. I'm not, I don't use it a lot and it's, it's more like a LinkedIn, um, which I do have a LinkedIn as well now. Um, but yeah, and, and on Spotify as well, just a, a quick search for my name should throw up, you know, soundtrack stuff. Um, usually pretty easy to find. There's a, quite a few top acres in the world, but um, fortunately not a lot of musicians, I think. So. Todd Baker. Yeah, well, actually, when I searched Todd Baker, it was it was like 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 the football chant goes. There's only one Todd Baker. It was <laughs> imme- I immediately found you. Um, Amazing. So awesome, <laughs> Todd. Thanks very much for joining me on Sync Music Matters.
Oh man, it's an absolute pleasure and um, it's been really fun. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash Sync Music Matters Podcast. And Sync Music Matters Podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.